This has been a big week. Uh, we've been shipping books all week long because Greater Than Jonah arrived this week and I brought copies. So if you are interested, the new book is here. It is um, the work of the last year plus, all finally done and I'm still trying to catch my breath. We've worked a, a long, long, this is easily the most ambitious book that we've written, the most ambitious project that we've done as far as really trying to do the work to find out what's been said about Jonah before, not just to talk about um, you know, what I see. And so um, I've never done a book this sided, this uh, cross-examined, um, but I'm really excited with where we landed. Um, we called it Greater Than Jonah because that's Jesus' statement about himself. And this book is an exploration of why Jesus would choose Jonah. And so when I started to dig into that and see all of the Jonah typologies that Christ is superior to and all the ancillary characters, both the Old and the New Testament, who have moments where they are, um, where they too are in some ways Jonah. Um, at the end of the day, you end up with, so are we. You know, we, we. We don't always go where we're supposed to go. So what's God do in those moments? So how does he chase us down? And so it's the only book of the Bible that ends with a question mark. And I think that's because you're supposed to answer it. Um, and so it's a book that you're supposed to take a deep dive into and go, what will I do with what God has me to do? So let's get into the Word tonight. I am excited about what I feel like the Father has put on my heart. I want to start, I'm going to meet you in Acts 8. If you have a Bible or a, or a digital copy and you, you need a little time to scroll and find it, the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. On our way there, I want to make a statement or two to kind of do two things. One, to get it out of my system, because that's how I study. Sometimes I hear things in my spirit and I wrestle with them and I want to I lay them out and say them, but also to, as a way of sort of introducing um, how, I, how I hope we can see the Word. Um, I think that we have, we have been taught in the church, all of us, for generations, that the word repent is closely linked to sin. If I say to you, we need to repent, almost, without even putting any thought into it, we think, of what? Because repent is because we've done something wrong, right? I mean, I, I don't even think you need to be in church. I think you could say it to unbelievers and, and go, hey, what, what do you think if I said you need to repent? They'll go, well, I'm gonna go. they'll say, I'm gonna, you think I'm going to go to hell? That's what most people, they put hell and repent close to each other, or they put sin and repent close to each other. And we do that in the church and we reinforce it all the time. We say to people, you need to repent, but we only point at it when they've done something wrong. We don't ever say you need to repent when they've done something right. Somebody does something right, we don't go, you need to repent, because we think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you repent if you do something right? And I think because we've done that, we are a non-repentant people in the church. Um, most people in the church think they repented when they got saved and then they repent if they sin. And they're trying not to sin. So they hope that they don't ever have to repent. Because by reality, if I'm, if I'm sinning, I need to be repenting. But if I'm, if I'm living a life where I'm not having to repent, then I must be living a life where I'm not sinning. And if I'm living a life where I'm not sinning, well, I'm doing something right. Because wasn't the point of this whole thing to stop sinning? Isn't that why I come to follow Jesus? Is so I wouldn't mess up anymore. So if I'm having to repent, I must be doing something wrong. And so 
For the most part, we look at repentance is equal to sin, and people that have to repent are people who must be sinning a lot. And at least we'll give them credit for repenting because, hey, at least they're repenting. If you're going to sin a bunch, at least be a bunch of repentance. You know, have those two things in equal proportion. I think we're doing it wrong. I, I really do. And I'm not, trying to be, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. I'm not, I'm not trying to be cantankerous about repentance. I, we ought to be in a constant state of repentance because repentance is actually changing it's, it, there's a turning that happens in our mind when we repent. We see things differently than we used to. Now, you're doing it all the time. You just don't call it repentance. You call it getting more information. Right? Get more information, change my mind. Well, okay, then call it getting more information. If you get more information about a good God, you get more information about a forgiving Jesus. You get more information about a resurrected Christ. Shouldn't you be repenting of the God you had yesterday? Shouldn't you be repenting of the God of limited love that you served this morning? As you see more of Jesus, shouldn't you be repenting of when you thought less of Jesus? And you go, well, I don't look at that as the same thing. I just look at that as sort of growing up. Fine, then growing up is a constant state of repentance. Because you don't think like you did when you were 10. You don't think like you did when you were 20. You don't think like you did when you were 30. You, won't, you don't think like you did six months ago. And... If we sort of plant our flag in the refusal to change our mind, in a lot of circles, we'll be applauded because that's looked at as some sort of highbrow, deep morality, traditional roots conviction. Oh, so-and-so never changes their mind. They're the same as they used to be. And I don't think that's nearly the compliment we think it is. You know, you, someone meets you and goes, we well, ain't changed a bit. You still act the way you used to act. You go, good Lord, what... what? I'm still, I'm still what I used to be? I mean, I'm a lot older than I used to be. I would think a couple of things at least have changed. And so without constant repentance, we do not develop into the people of God tomorrow that we're destined to be with the Holy Spirit we know today because you are not the people you were yesterday. So I think we need a call to repentance in the church, and we need it all the time. Every time we come together, there ought to be a call to repentance. Let us repent. Let us repent of what we have been so that we will realize we can be more. You say, well, I haven't really changed my mind about God lately. I, I believe God is good. He's a loving Father. Jesus has saved me. What do I need to repent of? Well, maybe, maybe we need to realize that repentance is the ability to become something we're not. And so if we knew that, we'd run to repentance. Because repentance would be, I'm ready to change my mind to become what I could be tomorrow. I don't just want to be a second version of what I am today. I want to be a, a version that, if, because I, let's say it this way, I'll try to wind this down. If His mercies are new every morning, that's what the Bible says. His mercies are new every morning, great is His faithfulness. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm not. What I need is to become renewed every morning in the way that He is new every morning. Father, in what way do you want to spiritually form me today? In what way do you want to spiritually reform? The word reform? In what way do you want to spiritually reform me today? In what way are you lining me up like a potter? I'm making that hand motion because that's sort of the Jeremiah, the, the, the potter's wheel. In what way do you want to fashion me? It's your great hands. I'm just clay. But I am not the pot that you're, that's the finished product. I'm on my way, but I'm not there. And I've fallen off the wheel a couple times, and I'm hard to deal with sometimes. And I need a little help 
a lot of times, but you're still doing the work. And so I'm still changing into what you want me to be. So, so I call this room to a state of repentance. May we always repent of what we were so that we can be who he wants us to be. And that is in Christ, letting Christ form us and shape us. Now I needed to get that out. But the second reason, I told you there's two reasons to do that. The second reason is to lead us into the word tonight, because I think the reality is, is that if we are concept driven people, we will double down on concepts and defend them. This is what I've seen a lot in the church. When we become concept driven, here's what we believe. This is our belief. Then everything else becomes defense of that concept. We circle our wagons around that concept. This is what makes us not like those people. What makes us not like them? Here's what we believe. So what I believe over here, then I defend. I build all my fences around it, my circle around it. We're going to fight to the death for this thing. And what we'll fight to the death for might not be what they'll fight to the death for, but bless God, they'll fight to the death for it down here because that's their thing. We secretly believe our thing is a little more important than theirs. That's why we're not in their camp. That's why we're in our camp. You know, we're not going to go to their camp. They got a lot of people in their camp, but they're all stupid. So we're over in our camp. We're rallying around our thing and we're not going to go join the stupid camp because we're smarter than that. And I'm just, I'm talking practically about how we view things. Don't just think theology, just anything. My, this is my thing. This is what I believe in. And then when I build my fence around it, then I got to defend it to the death. It's you don't, don't let anybody encroach on it. Don't let anybody change it. Don't let anybody stop it. I think when that happens to us as believers and, the, and we become conceptual believers to where we have concepts principles and points that's what defines our church it's what defines our denomination it's what defines our ministry it's what defines us as people this is how we become divisive it's how we become sectarian it's also how we stop growing because we are bible students who read our bible to find the point we need the point we're looking for to go find the verse that supports the point that props up the principle the thing that we're arguing for you were not transformed from darkness to light by points and principles. Nobody brought you in to resurrection reality because they had nailed down the salient point and they rallied their troops around it and you went, that's what I want. You don't come to Christ that way. You came to Christ because maybe there was 50 reasons you came to Christ, but at the end of the day, you believed you believed that Jesus rose from the dead. That, that's really where we landed on. In some way, no matter how you felt about that, what that really, you believe there's a risen Christ. If there's a risen Christ, then I want to know him. And you started following him. Now you might've came in because you were afraid of hell. You might've came in because someone scared you about the rapture. And you might've came in because somebody, because you felt guilty for your sin. And you might've came in because daddy was already in. And you might've came in because what else are you going to do? Whatever reasons, that's how you were raised. That's where they brought you up. But you only kept following because you believe he's alive. Otherwise you just quit. That's why you kind of hit that age and you're like, this is dad's, mom and dad's cuckoo. I ain't following this. This is junk. I've just seen, and I've, I've seen a lot of that where people go, I'm tired of the church fights and the hypocrites and the splits. And I'm, I'm tired of the, all the junk. Cause I'm done. I don't believe any of that because they didn't believe in a resurrected Jesus, but it's believing in Christ that unifies us. That's it. That's that concept. Okay. If that's true, why don't we read the Bible that way? Why don't we read the Bible on a Jesus hunt? 
He's lurking around every corner. He's hiding out in every Old Testament story. He's sneaking around every prophetic psalm and proverb. Everywhere you watch, the footprints of Jesus are all over the book, top to bottom, front to back. Why are we so married to concepts when concepts didn't get us saved? Jesus did. Why are we searching for the, through the Bible to argue doctrine instead of searching through the Bible to find Jesus? Finding Jesus is the great gift of his children. We get to go looking through his photo album and spot him in different moments, in different situations. Look what he was wearing right there. <gasps> Look what he sounded like back then. Look at, and this, the, this gorgeous glimpse of Christ. This is not basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E. This is a snapshot of your Savior. It, he's in these pages, or why do you own it? So if you're memorizing it for principles and verses and stuff, I want to challenge you to repent tonight. Big old long intro for all of that. I want to challenge you to change your mind tonight about Jesus. I want to talk about tonight, it's all about Jesus. And I want to show you a story that I think, and this is no shocker if you've heard me teach before, but I want to show you a story in which I think there's more going on than meets the eye. And this is the story found in Acts chapter 8, beginning in the 26th verse. It's going to be the story of Philip the Evangelist and the Ethiopian eunuch. Not the most popular story in the Bible. Not the most popular story in the book of Acts. But a story nonetheless that is a glimpse of the radical grace of God and a glimpse of how the future church should be encouraged to read the Bible. All right, let's just read the story through, and we'll come back and do some work. Beginning in verse 26 of Acts 8, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near, overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth, and in his humiliation his justice was taken away. Who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And you might jot in somewhere to the side that, if your reference doesn't tell you, that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading a portion of what we call Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. He's not reading all of what we call verses 7 and 8, but he's reading a portion of what we call Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Verse 34, So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and began at this scripture preaching Jesus to him. 
I want to repeat, not because I don't think you know how to listen or read, but for emphasis sake, I want to repeat the 35th verse. Listen again. Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, before you go look up Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, do you think Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8 say the word Jesus? <laughs> Quite impossible. In fact, Jesus hasn't come onto the scene yet. Isaiah has not told what the name of the person is in this chapter. Yet Philip decides that right here he's going to start preaching Jesus in an Old Testament passage. He's going to start here. It doesn't say he stops, but he's going to start here. And you know what he's going to do with it? He's going to preach Jesus. And here's something I had, I've never really taken into account. He starts to preach Jesus because he's actually answering the question as it was asked to him by the Ethiopian eunuch. Look one more time in verse 34 and look at the wording that the eunuch uses in asking Philip his question. I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip begins to preach to him Jesus. The reason I say Philip does it this way in response to the question is because the Ethiopian eunuch asks his question opposite of the way we ask questions about the Bible. The Ethiopian eunuch says, who's this about? But we don't ask questions like that about the Bible. We say, what's this mean? We're meaning people. You know why? Because we're principles and points people. What's this mean? Hey, what's this verse mean? Hey, what do you think about so-and-so verse? What do you think about this translation? What do you think about, I get asked, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? I get asked that constantly in the environment that we're in in teaching. What do you think about this topic? What do you think about this point? What do you think about this principle? And then we drag it over into the natural, into the politics. And go, what do you think about this law? What do you think about this rule? What do you think about this thing? We're, we're, we're principle stuff minded. And I realize we live in a world where all that stuff has to be done. But when we open this treasure chest as children of God and we peer inside, which is what Philip gets to do with the Ethiopian eunuch, the question we ought to be asking is not what does this mean? The question we ought to be asking is who is this in this story? Who is this about? Because sometimes the answer is, this is about me. And sometimes the answer is, this is about us. But always what we're looking for is, who is the centerpiece of this story? And, if, and the who becomes Jesus. And let me say this, where the who is not Jesus, or where you're reading a text and can't find him, my encouragement to you is don't squeeze it like a washcloth trying to drain out every drop of theology out of a text. If you squeeze and can't find Jesus, Turn the page and read the next story. <laughs> Move on to the next one. So that when you investigate the word, you are not looking to just frame concepts and then build fences around them, doctrines, denominations, and churches, and write books, but rather looking for the man, Christ Jesus. Where is he in this story? How does it apply to him? How does it apply to him contextually? How does it apply to him historically? Is this leading us to the, to the actual Jesus in the text? But, but even greater, how does this apply spiritually to Jesus? Where is Jesus in this? When we major the other way, I'm talking about majoring and seeing Jesus. When we major in principles, we become literalists. So we read our Bible to try to explain whether things really happen that way or not. 
instead of trying to see Jesus in the story. I could pick stories across the Bible for this illustration. Let's just go back near the beginning. You can become infatuated with Noah's Ark. How big it is, how wide it is, how tall it is, how long it is. How do you get all those animals in there? What'd they do with all the animal dung? How'd they, how'd they clean off the decks? How'd they carry all that food? What'd they do the first thing it got off? We can get so lost in what does this mean that we miss who is this? Who is this becomes, Peter tries to do that in his epistle when he goes, just as the ark saved eight souls, so, sh- so are we saved by the washing off of water. Peter's trying. He's trying to go, I'm not going to explain to you Noah's Ark. That's not how you teach that lesson. But what I will do is show you who is Noah's Ark. Not what is Noah's Ark. Who is Noah's Ark? Who is the one that saves you from the flood of chaos in your life? Who is the one that has one door? Who is the one that is gentle like a dove that lands on the olive branch? Who, when it becomes who, a world of possibilities opens up. You are no longer limited by the what because the what just becomes mathematical figures and charts and maps and trying to place stuff on historical timelines and archaeologies and digs and finds. The who saves souls. The what starts arguments. The what doesn't ever end. The who is the author and the finisher of our faith. The who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christ as the ark Ah, well, he can float right into whatever floods in your life. He can can come into whatever disaster is part of your experience. He can can be the only way in and the only way out. He can be uh, the house for you and your family. Uh, The illustrations start to just line themselves up. And you go, where do we learn to preach like that? Maybe Acts 8, where Philip, the first evangelist that we really see go out with the gospel, is confronted by an Ethiopian eunuch. Everything's wrong with his audience. Everything's wrong with his audience. This is beautiful. I love how the Word does this. His audience is an Ethiopian eunuch. He's not the right religion. He's not the right race. He's not from the right place. And he's a eunuch. And if you need that explained to you, there's a little thing called Wikipedia. But it involves snip, snip. So he's not the kind of man Philip's used to hanging out with. And the Spirit says to Philip in verse 29, chase that chariot down. Mm. So this is how it starts. How does it start? It starts by hearing the Spirit who goes, all right, you're in this place for this hour. Go chase that chariot down. Philip doesn't even know what he's going to do. What do I do when I get there? Now, a lot of us are thinking ahead of the Holy Ghost. I'm guilty of this all the time. God goes, I want you to go over here. And I go, oh, okay, I know what's up. I know what we're going to do. That's why you called me, right? That's why you called me there. And a lot of times, it's not what I thought. We get there and the Holy Spirit goes, stop second guessing me. All I did is tell you to chase the chariot. We'll figure out what we're going to do in the chariot when we get there. Part of the problem, Paul, is that you want to go do, but you don't want to listen. Philip goes. And then he's told to listen because the Ethiopian eunuch starts to ask questions. And so a lot of what happens is that we 
Well, what happens in, let me start here. What, what happens in Philip's story is he chases the chariot down. He asks the man a question, verse 30. Do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I? And his approach to evangelism fascinates me. And it's not the approach I was taught to use. I would have been taught to jump up in that chariot and tell the Ethiopian eunuch where he was going to spend his eternity. Because the way he looked, the way he acted, the kind of lifestyle he'd chosen. Philip's on a mission from the Spirit. See, that other stuff's on a mission from man. You get, you get wrapped up in principles, you got to defend principles. You get wrapped up in Jesus, you don't have to defend anything. You just listen to the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's gonna, not going to tell you always that you say the same thing to her that you say to him, that you say to her, that you say to him. If you, all you have is principles, then all you got is the same thing to her, same thing to him, same thing to her, same thing to him. But if you have the person, Christ Jesus, each person's beautiful and individualistic. They got special needs, they got individual problems, they got failures, they got hopes, they got dreams. You don't know them, but the Holy Ghost does. And if you listen, the Holy Spirit will start to say, she don't need to hear what he needs to hear. Don't walk in here with your, you know, your three points in illustration, a poem and a song, feel like you've got evangelism licked. Chase the chariot down and ask the right question. So Philip jumps up in the chariot, doesn't start preaching. He just goes, do you understand what you're reading? The guy goes, how in the world am I going to understand what I'm reading? I don't, I, don't, I don't know I don't understand what I'm reading. And then to prove his point, he reads it off to Philip. Almost like, who could possibly understand this? And he reads a little portion of that text from, from Isaiah. And then his question, who is this about, not what does this mean? And here's, here's what I felt like the Holy Spirit spoke to me for this room and for whoever watches. We ask, what does this mean? Because we're wrapped up in trying to find meaning. And meaning varies from person to person. To find identity we try to find people who have very similar meanings to us. That's why we split off into gangs, tribes, parties, teams, political affiliations, churches. You need to find somebody who shares my basic, we like to say it this way, I want to find someone who shares my values. That's a real churched up way of saying, I want to get in the same room with people I don't have to argue with. Essentially, that's kind of what that, I think that's, that's a, I think that what, that's what that means. I want to be with people who share my values kind of means I don't want to be with people I got to listen to because some of these people got some stupid ideas and I'm not going to, I'm not going to set through all these stupid ideas. And you're right. Some people, we all have stupid ideas. I didn't just mean them. We all have some stupid ideas. It's just, if you get around other people who have the same stupid ideas, ain't nobody going to know they're stupid. (laughs) Sometimes that's, sometimes you don't figure out how, how off they are. Do you hear the other idea? And you go, hmm, hmm. Maybe their idea is worse. That happens too. That's fine. That's life. That's conversation. Because we're looking so hard for that, I think we look through the Bible for those things too. Looking for finding the meaning. But the reality, I think, is the reason that Philip handles the Ethiopian eunuch the way that he does goes back to the core of what we were saying a moment ago. is because each individual is different because meaning actually varies from person to person. Meaning varies even from season to season. 
the man Christ Jesus doesn't. What the text means to me today, what I'm about to say to you, I believe with a firm conviction, but I don't in any way mean it as my spiritual foundation. Please understand. My firm conviction is what the scripture means to me today is probably not what it meant to me yesterday and most likely not what it will mean to me in a week. The man Christ Jesus is who I serve. You understand what I mean by that? So my spiritual foundation is not on, I got to get the meaning out of this text. My spiritual foundation is I've met the man Christ Jesus. Can I find him in this text? And so my season changes, yours change. You go through stages and places in life where things mean something to you they didn't mean to you before. Even scriptures start to take on that. Have you noticed why you'll read a book of the Bible or a chapter and it it won't say anything to you? And then the next time around, it really says something to you. And then you read it the next time around, it kind of says something to you. And the reason for that is because you are meeting that text in different seasons. And the man in that text, Christ Jesus in that text, has something to say to you in your season. And if you can't repent of the way you used to see it, you are not eligible to grow in the season that you're in. And so there has to be a level. Every time we come to the word, we're repenting of what we saw there before when we were just look in the seasons of our lives. But we're looking for Christ in that text now to say to us, what does Jesus say to me in this hour? And I think if we could do that, we would not become disciples of the Bible. We would become disciples of Jesus who use our Bibles to find that Jesus rather than use that Bible as a weapon or use that Bible as a tool. Instead, it becomes a a, a songbook about him. Listen to the music, find Jesus in it. Where you don't find him, move to the next song, move to the next story, find Jesus in it. It'll also keep you at peace because it keeps you from weaponizing the text and it keeps you from, from only rallying around points and principles, but instead rallying around the man, Christ Jesus. Now, what happens in the Philip Ethiopian story, I told you, I said, I think there's more there than meets the eye. The moment that Philip begins to teach the Ethiopian eunuch about Jesus, they're riding down the road in the chariot and they come across a river. And the, the, the eunuch says to, hear, says to Philip, here's some water, what keeps me from being baptized? Which is an interesting question because Philip hasn't said anything about baptism. So we can either assume A, baptism was already so popular among the early church that even the Ethiopian eunuch knew about it. Like, these people are baptizers. If you want to get in their club, you're going to get down that water and they'll tell you that the old you goes in and new you comes out. Or B, we just don't see the whole message and Philip's been talking to him so long as they ride down the road that he goes, and let me tell you about the moment Jesus was baptized at the River Jordan and what that baptism means. I don't, I'm not smart enough to know if it's A or B. It's probably some C, D, or E I ain't thought of because it's beyond me. But what we do know is that when they get to the water, the unit goes, can I be baptized? And Philip says, if you believe with your heart, you can be baptized. And the eunuch is ready. They jump down out of the chariot. He gets baptized. He goes down into the water. And when he comes out of the water, 
This is where the story gets super unbelievable. So hang on. When he comes out of the water, Philip disappears. The Bible says the spirit takes him to another city. You go, okay, I don't know how to handle that. I don't either, except this. I'm not trying to find out what it means. I'm trying to see Jesus in it. And what I see when I look for Jesus there is an encapsulated version of our life's journey on our way to Christ in a sped up motif. Bring all my trash, who I am, encounter the word, hear about Jesus, get baptized, salvation happens. In this story, it happens in like 30 seconds. And I think the fact that Philip disappears is the Holy Spirit's way of showing us I'm speeding up this process in the same way that I'm speeding up Philip's journey from point A to point B. I'm speeding up the whole salvation process to tell it to you in one story. And in that sped up version of the story, I bring everything that I am and going down the road of life in my chariot with its bumps and its turns and I have kids and I get married and I get a job and I buy a house and I lose it and then I do this and I do that and I make a mistake and I do something dumb. And as I ride down the road of life, I make a determination about Christ. I don't do it just on a Sunday morning at the end of the service in one prayer and then I'm saved. Although some of us see that as the only way that people can actually come to know Christ is say the prayer. And they ain't even ready to say the prayer. They don't know if they believe or not, but you got them to say the prayer so they can be rapture ready. Maybe rather than that, you let them ride the chariot of life. And as you talk about not me, not stuff and not what it means, but Jesus. At some point you come to a river. And rivers in the Bible are places where you cross over from one mindset to another mindset. And at some point in your life, you come to a river and you go, what forbids me from changing my mind today and jumping down into that water? And Philip goes, nothing forbids you if you believe on Jesus. And you jump in and the old you drowns and the new you raises up. And all the way you are on the journey to salvation. We're all on that journey. We're just at different spots in it. But at no point does it become about stuff. It's always. And from there, he began to preach to him, Jesus. You know what I love about you? This room gets to rally around Jesus. I would have stopped coming a long time ago if we didn't get to see Jesus every month. But we get to rally around Jesus, seeing him, hearing him, sometimes so real in the room you can almost smell him. You can almost reach out and touch him. And that's not my gift. That's not my ability. That's just a room that goes, don't tell me what. Show me who. I didn't come here to give you a what, but to show you who. Why a lot of our places are failing, why church is burning us out, is because we're building cathedrals of what. We're not building houses to talk about who. It's cathedrals of what. And the what might be doctrine, and the what might be principles, and the what might be high morality, and the what might be structure, and the what might be stuff and systems, but rarely is it who. And I do long. I love the church. 
I love it. It's all I've ever known as a church. I do long to come into places and just encounter Jesus. Just the, just the beauty of Jesus. One of the things that we tell tell when you get there is there'll be Ethiopian eunuchs there. If there's not Ethiopian eunuchs there, it's, it's not Acts 8 Jesus. It's, it's some other version of Jesus. I, I'm looking for the place where anybody gets to walk through the door. And we don't rush the encounter. We just let them ride the chariot. We go down the road with them. And we hug them and we hold their hand and we love them as we go down the road with them. And at some point they're going to come to a river. And it might be two weeks after they show up and it might be 20 years after they show up. But they're going to come to a river and they're going to say, what forbids me from totally immersing myself in this Jesus? That's baptism, by the way. What forbids me from just selling out to this Jesus? We go, nothing forbids you. You got to get out of this chariot and get on down here into the cross and the resurrection. If you do that, nothing forbids you. Aren't you hungry for that? Aren't you long to see that? That's the expression of the gospel where it is truly all about Jesus. It never ceases to be all about Jesus, and we get to encounter him through this. Let me give you a couple passages, if I could. I, I've told you one big story from one spot in the Bible, and I, we could stop now, take communion, all about Jesus. I want to shore it up with a couple of thoughts, if I could. One from the back of the New Testament and one from closer to the front. Look at 2 Timothy 3, because I want to, I'm, just going to make, I'm really just trying to land on two points. Point number one, the rest of the New Testament is built around this Acts 8 mentality. I'm not just showing you some obscure moment. From Acts where you go, oh, well, that's how Philip did it. But hey, wait till you meet Paul. Wait till you meet Peter. Those guys didn't. Do no. Watch Paul in his last letter. This is it. He's about, his head's about to go to the chopping block. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says this to Timothy, verse 14. You must continue in the things you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now you might miss the importance of this because you're New Testament readers. And you assume that because you're in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy came along in a world that had 1 Timothy, and 1 Timothy came along in a world that had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so if Paul tells Timothy to stay in the Bible, well, he must mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because we're way back here in 2 Timothy. And if we're way back here in 2 Timothy, they must have already been reading Matthew. No. They didn't have any of that stuff, and they didn't call that Scripture. You know what they called Scripture? The Hebrew Bible. What we might call at least portions of the Old Testament. They actually had more than that that they called Holy Scripture, but I'll save that for your master's class in theology. So what we will say is what they had was Old Testament. In that light, reread that 15th verse. From childhood, you've known the Holy Scriptures. Let, let's insert the word Old Testament. Can we do that? All right, let's try it again. From childhood, you've known the Old Testament, and it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
And if you read Genesis to Malachi, Jesus never shows up. Never by name. But Philip thought he did. And so did Paul. You see, the New Testament writers, it's not a Philip's an anomaly. They picked up on what Philip did and all of them did it. All of them went, okay, what we've got to do is take the scriptures they know and show them Jesus is standing there. So we got to stop floating boats with figuring out if the boat would float and we got to make that boat Jesus. That's how we're going to do this. We got to stop trying to figure out the logistics of it and the geography of it and the story, the historicity of it. And we got to put in Jesus because people don't get saved off the literal geographic truths of the Old Testament. But salvation comes through faith in Christ Jesus. This to me is incredible. Remember what Philip, remember what Acts said about Philip? And starting there, he preached Jesus. Way back in Isaiah 53. Starting there, he preached Jesus. That doesn't mean there's no Jesus until Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 was what the eunuch gave him. So he took what the eunuch gave him and he went, here's Jesus. And the eunuch bought it. But he didn't buy it immediately. They had to ride down the road a little ways. Catch that? They had to ride down the road a little ways. Because this is a process. Some of you have fallen more in love with Jesus in the last couple of years. By your testimonies, you fall more in love with Jesus in these meetings. How did that happen? You rode down the road in your chariot of life, and we kept pointing out Jesus along the way. There's Jesus, and there's Jesus. Oh, and look over here, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll look to your left. And that's honestly what we're doing. Good preaching is just being a tour guide that shows people the Jesus stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'll just look to your left right here in this verse, there's Jesus hiding behind that tree. I want to show you Jesus today in this story. That's good preaching. That's what I'll go to church. I, I will go listen to, to that. Someone that points me to Jesus, even if it's challenging Jesus. Oh, I love challenging Jesus anymore. The Jesus that I go, ooh, I don't know if I want to meet him. And he goes, oh, you got to meet that Jesus or this chariot won't go any farther. And I go, okay, I got to go have a meeting with that Jesus and it's going to turn my world upside down. That happened to me the last two years when I got to the Sermon on the Mount and I got to meet the Sermon on the Mount Jesus. And Sermon on the Mount Jesus asks a lot, <laughs> demands some stuff of me. I didn't want to meet him at first. I, I wasn't even sure while we were talking I wanted to meet him. Like while I'm in the middle of his sermon, I'm going, I don't know if I need the rest of this. Some of this you can keep to yourself. Christianity was a lot easier before you introduced this part right here. Just I'll be fine with the Jesus that's alive from the dead. I don't need this teaching Jesus. He can keep his thoughts private. You don't get to do that. Once you've passed him in the chariot, ladies and gentlemen, there he is. There he is. You know what I love about it? He never leaves your consciousness, this Jesus. Once you see him in there, you can't unsee him. You know, once he, once he sneaks his head up in those Old Testament stories, he's always, he's always looking at you. <laughs> Like you're just reading those Old Testament stories. You're getting all your little principles and your PowerPoints. And then here comes Jesus and he looks at you and you go, oh, I can't unsee that. I don't. That's what happened to me when I saw the grace of God exemplified in Jesus. I couldn't unsee it. People go, you've, crawled, you've went too far. I go, you're right. I have went too far. I, I, I seriously I went too far. I can't go back. I won't go back. 
Jesus peeked his head up over the edge of that text. Once I saw him, I couldn't unsee him. That's not just how Philip preached. That's not just how Paul preached. That's how Jesus preached. Luke chapter 24. And this is it. I know I told you I'm closing, so I'm going to try to be a man of my word. Luke 24. I'm actually just going to read to you one verse to start. Before I read it, I'll tell you this quick little story to get you there. Jesus is on a seven-mile walk from Emmaus to Jerusalem. It's the Sunday morning after the cross. It's Sunday afternoon after the cross. And Jesus is on, I'm sorry, there are two disciples on the way from Emmaus to Jerusalem. A seven-mile walk, and they're talking about what they just saw happen in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, a stranger comes up over the horizon, someone they don't recognize, and starts to walk lockstep beside them. Because it's always a journey. You walk into Revelation one step at a time. You don't get this at Sunday go to meeting. One shot does it all. It can happen. It's rare. Because a lot of times Sunday go to meet in one shot, you get it all. You don't really get it all. You go home with as many questions as you had when you got there. You know, I don't want to get in the weeds. Somebody walks up beside them. And as they walk, they begin to talk. And the stranger says, what are you guys, what's so, what are you so sad about? And they go, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened this weekend? They said, have you not heard about they crucified Jesus? They said, we thought he was the one that was going to deliver us. Listen to that statement. We thought he was the one. Does that sound like faith to you? In fact, it's the opposite. They're disappointed. You get to be disappointed with God in this journey. You get to tell him you're disappointed. He just keeps walking. <laughs> he just keeps walking beside you. You get to say, I don't know if I believe this. And he just keeps walking beside you. You didn't earn this anyway. You didn't do anything. He just showed up. He invaded my life. I didn't do anything. He just showed up. He won't leave me alone. I just keep walking down the road and I look over and there he is. And sometimes I'm, sometimes I'm mad at him. And sometimes I'm confused. And sometimes I don't think he gave me a good deal. And it didn't shake out the way I wanted it to. And he just keeps walking. And I come up with this stuff like, I, I don't know if I believe. I don't know if I believe he's the one. I, I'm disappointed. I thought he would be the one. And he doesn't say, you know what, Paul? I'm done with you. I'm sick of you. These arguments and this lack of faith. No, he just, just keeps on trucking. And you know what he does? He does verse 27. Beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them <laughs> in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
There's your third evidence of the New Testament. And this one's the best one of all. Jesus is the hidden figure in the story. They just don't know it yet. Earlier in the story, the text tells you, the reader, that their eyes had been blinded so they wouldn't realize that the stranger that walked next to them was the resurrected Christ. They're actually spilling their guts in front of the resurrected Christ. They're giving all their doubts and their fears to the resurrected Christ. And his response is not guilt, shame, condemnation. You're stupid. Why don't you believe in me? His response is, let me show you Jesus in all of these stories. Because this book is just snapshots of Jesus. I show you this so that you believe that he is who he says he is. And in the midst of that, they still don't get it. I'm, I'm, I've, lo- I've loved this story for so long. I've been infatuated with the story of the road to Emmaus for so long watching Jesus and these two. I've never really, until recently, had any, any real landing spot on the power of the actual reveal by Jesus. In the New Testament, when the resurrected Christ shows himself to people, the minute they recognize him, he disappears. Like, reach your hand out. And touch my side. And he does. Gone. Walks through the walls, reveals himself to his disciples. Gone. The apostle Paul, Saul, sees him on the road to Damascus. Blinders go over his eyes. Why? Because he wants you to find him from now on. In here. And right over there at that table. How do I know? They drew near to the village where they were going and he indicated that he would have gone further, but they constrained him and said, abide with us. It's toward evening. The day is far spent. He went in to stay with them and it came to pass as they sat at the table with him. He took bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to him, to them and their eyes were open and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. Because when you take the bread of life in, that's how you see Jesus. In the word and in the community of communion, the body and the blood of Jesus. 2,000 years of the church, we've been seeing Jesus in the word and the body and the blood. And I love it. It's another reason I love the church. We are that expression of Jesus. We've just gotten lost in trying to do it better than everybody else. It's what's killing us. Is everybody, we just always try to be big and build stuff and do it better than the last place. That's building stuff on principles and ideas. It's just about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I'm not asking you to make a profession of faith tonight. I'll be honest with you, I've been praying the Apostles' Creed every day because. 2,000 years of church history, it says everything the church believes in about the Creator God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit. I've been praying it every day. I did a whole six, seven, eight weeks of it on my podcast. I do believe that it is a prayer that the church has prayed as, well, it used to be the prayer you prayed when you got baptized. For hundreds of years, the church wouldn't baptize you if you didn't recite the creed because it was your way of saying, this is what I believe, baptize me in it. And somewhere along the way, 
we sort of went global evangelism and salvation became bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand, repeat a prayer after me, private salvation. Nobody has to know if you're really saved or not. And I don't know, I think we lost something. Um, I'm not asking you to say the prayer. Um, I'm not asking you to repeat the creed. I do think if, if God puts me in a place, if I do this Sunday to Sunday again, it's going to be a part of it. It's, going to, it's how I'm going to close every sermon is with the creed. If you pray it and you believe it, welcome to the family. Pray the parts you believe, ride the chariot. <laughs> Don't pray any of it, ride the chariot. We're going to come to the river eventually. You just get to keep coming. We love on you. Take you in, fellowship with you. Call you family. We're riding the same chariot. You don't have to say the same prayer. Someday you're going to come to a river and go, what keeps me from saying this prayer? And I'm going to say, nothing. Do you believe it? Step right up to the Lord's table. Let's eat. So I don't ask you to say a certain prayer. I hope I show you Jesus every month in a way that makes you say, man, I'm glad I went because I got to see Jesus. But what we try to do when we close this is have that moment of communion where you take the body, you take the blood, and you realize that it's a participation in the rites of the church to see Jesus in his brokenness and in his shed blood. And in his brokenness, you get to see, his, you get to see that all of your brokenness is in Christ. And all of your sacrifice, all of your hurt, all of your pain, all of your reproach is in his blood. And you get to rest in what Jesus has done for you. Right. Father, I thank you for tonight. I had, real, I had a real encounter with you tonight with my friends. And I, I'm so humbled that you do this the way you do this. I don't, I don't know how to duplicate this. If I could duplicate this, I could, you could, we could bottle this and sell it. But it doesn't work that way. I hope that the glimpse we caught of Jesus tonight is not just an emotional moment where we go away and say, man, that was good. But the glimpse we caught of Jesus tonight is a glimpse we can't unsee. That we become shaped and formed because you keep walking next to us. <coughs> and we keep riding the chariot on down the road. Father, we're going to go to the table in a moment and we're going to eat the body and drink the blood. But it's not our table, it's your table. Everyone gets to come. And I'm going to bring all my doubts and my fears and my hurts and my pains and my disillusions and I'm going to bring it to your brokenness. And I'm going to take into me who you are so you can have what I am. It's not a fair trade. I've got a bunch of junk to give and you have life to give. So I give you all of my junk and I take your life and you call it a fair trade. And such is the family of God. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. And we receive him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Amen.